Welcome to Sound Mind, the podcast dedicated to thoughtful, compelling conversations with musicians about music. I am Cameron West. Joshua Jeremiah is a very successful opera singer. God, I love this guy. He is a boisterous lad, to put it lightly. I have a couple of warnings here. This episode features fairly in-depth conversations about performing nude. It is mildly not safe for work, a little bit of profanity as well. At some point I may release the entire unedited episode because the edit I created here is quite tame compared to some of the details of that discussion that I tactfully left out, and I think it's wise to wait on slapping a bona fide parental advisory sticker on SoundMind just yet. But nevertheless, the conversation was fascinating. Josh and I discuss the devastating passing of Matt Marks that occurred this past May. Josh played a role in the premiere of Matt's groundbreaking opera Matahari at Prototype Festival a couple of years back. As I say in the episode, Matahari's premiere is seared into my mind as one of the most haunting, compelling performances I've ever seen, and Josh and I express, of course, our warm and fond memories of Matt, his profound impact on new music here in New York, and I imagine some people listening were very close with him, so if anyone should find such a conversation too much to handle at the moment, please feel free not to listen or to fast forward through that section. Josh will be performing the role of Frankenstein Monster, not Dr. Frankenstein, in a sold-out opera premiere at Crypt Sessions. I wanted to plug that for him, but clearly he needs no promoting, because you can't get tickets. And last but not least, we discuss Josh's upcoming work with Minnesota Opera. It was such a fun conversation. I was so happy to have him. He is a barrel of laughs. Please welcome baritone Joshua Jeremiah. Does anyone ever call you JJ? Um, I yes. I got called JJ a lot in grad school by undergraduate girls that I think were flirting with me. I think they were flirting with you too. I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah. Well, Josh, welcome to Sound Mind. Thanks for coming on. How it are you? How are you doing? My pleasure. I'm good. good. You enjoying that beer? I am. It's hard to go wrong with a double IPA that's over eight percent. That's true. Josh and I are imbibing a little bit as we record this, so you might hear a, a sip or two as we go along, but um, yeah. We'll try to keep it classy. Take us through the deep, dark reaches of your childhood. Uh, oh, tell yeah. us how you grew up. How did you start doing music? How did you start singing? I don't um, know if you started all at the same time, but... Music has always been in my heart. Uh, no, but yes, uh, I grew up in central Pennsylvania in a very conservative, sheltered uh, area, Lebanon, Lancaster County. Uh, I had Amish next door neighbors. So suffice to say, I grew up in a very rural environment, but thankfully my school had a pretty decent arts program. So I was always involved in music. I played saxophone in elementary school, middle school always sang, was in all the plays. Uh, I knew that I wanted to do music probably in middle school, but wasn't totally sure. Were you studying it in elementary school too? Uh, I mean, yeah, I took some piano lessons and I started saxophone, I think in the fourth grade. Fourth or fifth grade was when the uh, elementary school band program kicked in. Um, but my mom was a musician, uh, like a church musician, so I was definitely, I grew up around music. I think I started piano lessons when I was like six, uh, but I only took for like a year. So unfortunately it didn't 
help me later in life to avoid class piano. It seems like everyone I've talked to who plays something other than piano started on piano and hated it, and that was why they, yeah. it wasn't even like they wanted to switch to something because they liked music, they just hated piano so much. There was something about practicing the piano that was super frustrating because you hear people play the piano and all of the chords and fireworks and stuff that they can do and then you're in there playing like Bastion Book Level 2, Mary Had a Little Lamb on all the black keys. One hand at a time. Yeah, and it just, it was, it was very frustrating. And I was young and didn't care and didn't, you know, wasn't all that interested in work. <laughs> yeah, I fell in love with music and I don't know that I would have fallen in love as quickly and as intensely if I would have started on piano lessons the way that I've experienced piano lessons when I've taught them. Right. Like, I teach these kids and I'm like, oh my god, I'm sorry. Like, there's just something about a piano lesson where the technical facility is so important and getting that right and getting kids in the mindset of curling your fingers and yeah. sitting up straight. I mean, I guess sitting up straight is a matter of every instrument, but there is something very mechanical and boring about the piano before you use two hands. Piano was my first instrument, so I was learning the language of music. I didn't have any fundamental understanding of, you know, you learn the note letters, but I mean, it's not super fun. When I teach brass, every kid, I have to stop them from trying to make sounds so that I can talk to them. It's right. so fun to sit there and try and make sounds on a trumpet, but piano, it's, it's a tough thing to try and convince somebody who isn't quite at the level where they hear it being played by their elders. Right. So you got to junior high and you decided to do music. Was that when you took up singing or were you doing uh, more sax? I mean, I, I definitely always sang. Um, my mom was a singer, so I grew up singing, but not classical music, really. I started taking classical voice lessons in the eighth grade after my voice had like finished fully changing. Although I was kind of a bass in seventh grade as well. That's a big deal for singers, right? The development of the voice into maturity for sure. is a huge part. Of yeah. It's always changing, so what never changes is the fact that it's always changing. Uh, after puberty, which for me was like 12, 13 years old, and I became a bass, I was a bass for about eight years, and then I shifted into baritone for college and grad school. The New York Times called you a rich baritone. You know, they, uh, they've said a great many things, all of them true if it's good. But it wasn't always a rich baritone, it used to be a rich bass. It, I was a rich bass in undergrad, uh, boy soprano before that, if you go back far enough. But I saw you before we ever met at Matahari, which was Matt Marks' oh, yeah. opera at Prototype. What was that Wild. like? And Harry, I mean, obviously his uh, sudden death yeah. was a horrible it stain was, on this year. It was really, we're the same age, we're, we're offset yeah, by... Yeah, he was what, 38? I think he was 38, maybe, maybe he just turned 39. It, uh, it was really shocking. Yeah. I think, and I, I'm a big fan of his music and his, him as a person, he was just one of who's was just a kind of rock and roll dude in this classical business who just gave zero fucks about convention. Absolutely. And was so interested in making wild, wacky, cool, thoughtful, engaging music. I had worked with him before that, 
Well, we actually met for Matahari, but on a workshop like seven years before it actually was performed. Uh, and uh, I knew I would like him when we got there and he was like, all right, we're gonna do the, I think it was like the gonorrhea shepherd's chorus. He's like, think of it, <laughs> think of it like the beginning of the Messiah, like where the, the angels are, but, but you're the shepherds announcing gonorrhea has come because of World War II or some shit like that. And I was like, this guy's fucking awesome. Yeah, like, is, I'm gonna have a great this time. This is great. But then we did, uh, I sang one of his vocal pieces, which is the story of this pedophilic doctor in South America that fell in love with a nine-year-old and when she died he stole her body and embalmed it in his home and lived with it like it was his best based on a true story uh, but yeah Matahari was a, it was a wild project because I, I was involved from like one of the very first workshops over the course of about four years uh, before we finally took it on to stage that's rad. I'm glad you. I'm glad you saw that. Oh my god! It was one of the most compelling performances I've ever seen in my life, and so beautiful. I mean, Matt Marks was such a force for new music yeah. in New York City and really everywhere. My new music ensemble, Contemporaneous, is modeled after Alarmal Sound, oh, yeah. which, of course, he was the artistic director. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that show a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it was an interesting. It was very heavily based and grounded in dance, which is definitely not my strongest area. I was gonna ask, can you bust a move? Because you do a lot of musical theater. I do, yeah, I do I do a decent amount. Uh, but no, move, I'll, I'll bust a hip before I bust a move, I'm afraid. Each kind of di different scene was based on a different musical dance style, not necessarily in the period of World War I, uh, but some of them were. I did, my scene was a tango. There was a foxtrot scene, but you know, on top of that is Matt's really unique spin of, of electronic music. I mean, there was a drum track throughout much of the show. The conductor had to conduct with a click track. Yeah, Prototype Festival, they do, they do great work. Uh, and there was the, the here, Cultural Arts Center. Yeah, I gotta plug Beth Morrison and Prototype. Beth Morrison Projects, just, yeah, just. Beth is fantastic. I realized it from watching it that there was so much choreography involved. What was the most challenging dance routine I mean, you had to do? My part was relatively easy uh, because I just did the tango and then there was a little bit of the waltz that we kind of partnered on and off with her. Uh, with the Matahari actress. How much would you say choreography plays a role in a career in opera, especially new opera now? Um, I mean, have every skill you can have. If you, if you can move and you can dance, if you want to be a performer, sometimes that's required. Like, take it seriously. Learn every skill, take a stage combat class, take a movement class, take a period movement class so that when you're doing something that takes place in the eight, early 18th century, you have some idea on how to move because there's just too much competition to be lazy about anything. I imagine that even if you're doing a production of Carmen, you have to at least know how to move your body, know how your body exists in space, Absolutely. know yeah. what's going on around you. And it might not be a dance, but it's certainly yeah. a choreographed routine with other people. If you're at a different point in the stage or even doing something different every night you're gonna throw people off. Well and people 
people are uh, blocking is choreography is interesting like there's definitely inside the blocking you're definitely required to know exactly where you are in relationship to everyone else but uh, I remember I did a uh, speaking of Carmen I did a competition for the Metropolitan Opera Council auditions um, the big young under 30 cattle call for the the big Met competition and in one of the rounds, one of the judge, I sang Escamillo, and the feedback I got was that I moved around too much because the bullfighter should be com more, you strike a pose and then it's, uh, you need to be still so that the flourish of movement, and so even in like a non-staged bullshit competition that I was not going to win, like a, a an awareness of my body and an in-depth idea of how the character should move completely prevented me from like the guy was pissed off that I moved around stage so much he was like have you ever seen a bullfight and I was like of course not because they're barbaric as fuck and they should be outlawed <laughs> and he was like he was like well you should go see one and like the bullfighter never moves and I was like you should have led with that uh, yeah, it's true. I didn't. I never would have thought about that. Me neither. I was just out there entertaining. Like the audience fucking loved it. They were like, ah, we, I was entertaining. I was charismatic. But the guy, the guy that was judging me was like, not. It was not authentic. It was not based in a factual truth that he knew. So immediately, it didn't matter how well I sang. I like irked him. It's fascinating, but you almost think that, you know, with the contrast to like Don Jose, he's sort of in the revamp I did on Broadway. They call, uh -huh. they call him like a Casper milk toast. You know, he's like a very vanilla guy who kind of gets turned bad. So you, yeah. you'd almost think like all this movement would benefit the bullfighter role. Oh, totally. Than, but I guess that guy knew bullfighting or something. Exactly. He, he's big bullfighter, bullfighting aficionado. And then I guess tying your choreography into the other thing you do, which is uh, Broadway shows, old Broadway shows yeah, in I, particular. I, I, uh, I have done a number of the Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, shows and the old uh, and some concert work in Broadway. Yeah. I, I started off as a musical theater major, uh, although oh, really? I only lasted one year. At Shenandoah At University? Shenandoah, yeah. yeah. Uh, after my, I want to say it was 8 a.m. ballet, four days a week, which I almost failed because of... Uh, absences and tardies. Yeah. Oh, dude, you know how to dance, though. You took ballet. No. I, I took ballet, but I don't... It, that was the thing. It was after that first year of dance, I uh, essentially did not improve at all. And I was like, oh, this, I'm not good at this. 8 a.m. dancing as a freshman in college. I had no chance. Like, I was... I didn't... They didn't... The school bookstore literally did not have ballet slippers that fit my fucking feet. They did not, Capizio did not stock my size. Maybe now it's different. This was the late 90s. So tell us about some of the Broadway productions you've been in and do you see kind of a connection between the choreography that might be required for newer productions, the sort of uh, maybe more well-rounded skill set that people could have for new opera and the choreography that might go with maybe doubling as an opera singer and a sure. Broadway singer? I definitely think contemporary opera has built into it a requirement of a more theatrical element. Why is that? Um, I think part of it is the language barrier, to be honest, that, that we're using librettos that are being written now 
by contemporary librettists. I totally agree. So the the through the the language is more immediate. The 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 idea of what we're trying to convey is contemporary, whereas um, Boito and uh, you know these librettists or Dupont, like Mozart's librettist, Dupont, they they were trying to communicate things in a way that a contemporary 18th century audience member would understand. Of course you can have an opera plot that's original, but there are tropes right. in every art form and there are tropes in opera. And certainly in certain eras. The tenor's the good guy, the bass is the dad, the soprano may, if it's a happy opera, she gets married, if it's a sad opera, she gets dead. You know. Oh man. Um, I do think uh, going back, going back to your question five minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, Who am I? <laughs> I do do it. I do do. Um, I love, I love Broadway. I love musical theater. There, I do have the occasional opportunity to do some uh, Rogers and I've sung Billy Bigelow in Carousel, one of my, one of my favorite shows, one of my favorite scores, bar none. Uh, and the uh, the th kind of through composed bench scene is 20 minutes of the best music in the musical theater repertoire. Well, I want to talk to you about these, you know, crypt sessions you're about to do. Yes. Speaking of monsters, uh, real and imagined or figurative, like Billy Bigelow. Yeah. I call I, him I a will. complicated figure. Exactly. He's a complicated man. I wouldn't marry the guy, but I'd gladly sing the role. No, and it's funny how they totally skip that part of the plot, too, where they actually get married. Yeah. It's They're like, just wait, in you, love, you were and just, then... You were just saying, I don't love you, I'll never marry anyone, and then in the next scene, they're totally married. Okay. Let's, let's talk about Frankenstein for the snobs in our audience. You will be playing the Frankenstein monster, not I am, I am Dr. Frankenstein. The monster, not do, not Dr. Frankenstein. And, and uh, unlike uh, horror lore, the misconception is that Frankenstein is the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor. Yes. Um, and I will be playing the creation. It's based on uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which unlike the movies where the monster is kind of portrayed as a groaning, giant, overstrong, uh, kind of idiot, buffoon force, uh, the monster in the book is a completely intellectual human being that understands his place in society, uh, completely understanding that he's at the bottom and will never be able to find societal happiness. And so he uh, kind of entreats, he implores Dr. Frankenstein to make him a companion and then, and then kills them all when it doesn't go his way. Frankenstein double crosses him and he kills Dr. Frankenstein's wife and it's, pretty dark. And who composes it? Uh, Greg, you know, I've never actually heard his last name pronounced Kalor, I believe, Kalor. Greg Kalor. Um, it's the second weekend of uh, October. Are the performances will be uh, in some crypts. And right now it sits at about 40-ish minutes. Uh, and then he, it's all his music, I believe, on the night. There's a, he wrote a uh, a setting of the Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart for mezzo-soprano, and then there's uh, another piece that I'm not a part of. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting piece. It, 
is very monster heavy. I would say the first probably 14 minutes or so is just this gigantic monologue scene with the monster basically. It's the first time I believe that he and Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein, his creator, his god, meet. And it's him explaining to him his life and how he can now speak and how he, what has happened to him since he escaped from the uh, office. Are you aware of what your makeup situation is gonna be like? Are you gonna have this archetypal screw through the head? I am, I am almost certainly not going to have any screws through the head. Or go in for a session, an eye doctor session on Monday and get some colored contacts. You're perfect, all we need to do is put some bloodshot eyes on your Frankenstein, an abominable beast that frightens children. That's yeah, like, oh, you don't need much. My favorite <laughs> musical theater audition story, I went in for a gunklet. They were doing um, their summer program. They were doing Thoroughly Modern Millie, and the call was for a leading baritone, good looks, tall, dark, handsome, legit. Uh, it's all Noel Coward music, like based on Noel Coward music, so opera-ish, opera you know, yeah. late, early 1900. I went in, I sang it, I crushed the audition, I got a callback, but not for that role. I got a callback for Frankenstein's monster in Young Frankenstein. Oh. So I went in for the leading romantic role of one show and literally got called back as a a disgusting monster for another show. <laughs> well, that's something that's totally different from singers than from musicians. It has so much to do with how you look. Totally. And with yeah. musicians, it definitely does when there's no screen. People are definitely biased right. all the time. Of but with singers, you have to be able to see who you're looking at on stage. And it's built in, and more so in musical theater than in opera, although in opera it is, I've been asked about my comfortability with nudity, partial and full. I've been fully nude in a show. Yeah. Uh, and I certainly, you know, thank, you're welcome to the listeners that uh, it's only left up to their imagination. They have no idea what I would look like naked. Uh, let's just say I embody dad bod and uh, I just got a dog. Yeah, you're a handsome guy though. I, I, I do all right. I'm, I'm a solid, like I'm a solid six or seven, pretty much, I feel like on most people's standards. It doesn't have to be part of your career. I did not feel pressured into doing it. I was totally comfortable with it. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty open person. Uh, to me, it's more about the expectation. When you see me, there is no expectation in anyone's mind that I'm gonna take off my shirt and have a six pack. Like I'm a soft, lovable fellow. Cuddly. Ch I bet you, I bet you are a good cuddler. I, I'm a great cuddler. I'm a great hugger. The nudity was only the last, I would say, 90 minutes, or 90 minutes, Jesus Christ, 90 <laughs> seconds. It was just like 90 It was 90 minutes of the 110 minute piece. You know, a 20 minute opener, get everyone warmed up and then take it off. It was the last 90 <laughs> seconds of the piece. Uh, and I feel like it was, it was well earned. It's a, a love story of two poets kind of writing poetry back and forth together kind of falling in love but never meeting and seducing each other through their words and their wants and their desires and then at the end they meet for the first time like throughout the show we the Trevor Martin the other baritone and I we never even looked at each other uh, we were staged mostly across the stage from each other and we interacted with there were two ballet dancers and we uh, interacted mostly with them of course Trevor had not had a uh, 
carbohydrate in something like eight months because he was supposed to have the body of a god. And he, he did. probably did, he, yeah. Oh, dude, he crushed it. He worked so fucking hard, like, good on him. He, That's good. You know, he, he really... It was a lot of hard work and thoughtful self-control, and he looked like a fucking million bucks. And my part, like, literally in the libretto, I was supposed to be in my 50s, which is about, you know, 15 years. I was supposed to play 15 years older and have, like a saggy out of shape body so I was like check check <laughs> easily accomplished well last but not least I want to talk about Minnesota Opera and yeah, what man. you're going to do with them what your future holds with that group yeah I am singing the role of Lieutenant Horstmeyer in their upcoming production of uh, Kevin Putz Silent Night Putzes 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 yeah Kevin Putzes Silent Night uh, it won the uh, Pulitzer Prize in 2012, I believe. It was premiered at Minnesota and is coming back. And I think there is an option for possibly a recording, a commercial recording to come out of it, which is super exciting. Lieutenant Horstmeyer is the, uh, the, the higher, highest ranking German officer uh, on, on the scene throughout the show. It uh, takes place in World War I Germany. As any good actor does, I make myself the main character of the story, and uh, the, the entire show is about my character arc. But I really do feel like, m more than a lot of other characters, uh, Horstmeyer kind of has a change of heart, where from the very beginning, he's a, a German officer following the rules, um, it's they are uh, in a kind of a three-way standoff with the Scottish army and the French army and uh, they're just fighting each other to the death and it is Christmas Eve and they call basically a three-way truce to not murder each other for the night and then uh, they continue the truce for several days so they can all bury the dead and it gives the lieutenants uh, in each of the various uh, services, an opportunity to kind of converse with each other and, and humanizes the enemy in a way. It was direct, they, had, they were just about to start to go back to fighting and then one of the groups got pulled out. I think the Germans got called back to Germany uh, and pulled out and basically just gave it up. But, you know. They celebrated Christmas together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It forces you to look at your enemies as humans. And that's kind of the, the lesson that is that my, I know my character learns throughout the piece. I found opera and the arts in general have forced me to really probe the depths of my available empathy, has completely transformed me from, you know, a very conservative small town person into a wildly compassionate kind of leftist hippie liberal. Thank opera for that. Yeah, I, I, I really this do. This is your brain it, on opera. You know, uh, open-minded and attentive, skeptical of everything and attentive to the evidence and uh, curious. Well, how can people find you? How can people find out what you're doing? You obviously gave us two instances where yeah, yeah, yeah. people can come to your performances, but uh, joshuajeremiah.com, what's the... Joshua Jeremiah Baritone dot com. Joshua Jeremiah dot com. Now, what if you change you a, back to a bass? What uh, do you do Fuck that shit. No, it's, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. The Joshua Jeremiah dot com, I think, takes you still to a Midwest gay blogger. 
which uh, Is it good? I would love to be just so I could. I thought about writing him and being like, hey man. You guys should be affiliates. He's also Joshua Jeremiah at gmail.com, so I had to do Joshua B. Jeremiah with my middle initial. Joshua Jeremiah Opera Singer. I don't know any Joshua Jeremiahs except you, so. I'm the shit. One is all you need. Um, I can be found at my website, joshuajeremiahbaritone.com. I have a Facebook fan page, Joshua Jeremiah Baritone on Facebook. I'm, uh, I'm on the Instagrams. JBJ Curly, but that's mostly pictures of my dog and like food and yeah, but he doesn't want that. landscapes and shit from my various uh, travels across this beautiful world. Um, and then uh, if you're interested in hiring me, I uh, currently work with Ana de Archuleta Management. Um, so you can head over to ADA Artists for uh, my management webpage and reach out there. There are legions of ways to find me that's great i'm available for hire yeah just don't end up on that blog or do but then redirect yourself after you've read a couple well of... I'm, I'm also on the barahunks blog oh bro which is uh that's the one you should have said first you know you know that's not my personal blog but it is a, a blog run by a fabulously uh uh, I, I'll just say he's got great taste where he picks sexy baritones to feature. And you get featured uh, regularly or you no, have a feature? No, certainly not regularly. <laughs> a couple other times on various projects that I've done. That's good. Well, I'm glad he's noticed. I'm glad he's paid attention. Yeah. Well, this will be our most Nazi for work podcast to date. And I thank you for that. And thanks for coming on Sound Mind and hey man, telling us all about it. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'll, I'd be happy to come back if you have any more questions about uh, all of the... Uh, the seedy underbelly of the operatic world. Thanks so much for listening. If you've been enjoying Sound Mind and would like to support it, you can find our website at CameronWestMusic.com soundmind, or you can support us on Patreon at Patreon.com soundmind. Oh,